right, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. This morning, we're going to begin by talking about sanctification. And the reason we're going to do that is because the Christian faith and its approach to dealing with people's troubles is quintessentially opposite from the way that the world views trouble. Uh, Generally speaking, modern psychology will focus on the fact that everything that ails you is external to you, whereas Christians, we believe that someone's greatest need for help is actually internal. The greatest dangers are internal. The things that we have to battle are primarily internal. In fact, we can handle anything that comes at us from the outside. We can go through the hardest of circumstances, like Paul says in Philippians 4, I have learned in all things the secret of being content. We can, we can deal with all of those things on the outside, but the challenge is dealing with things on the inside. And so for our focus today, if we really want to know how to help people, how to serve people, how to love people, how to care for people, we need to know how to focus on and deal with their sin, how to come alongside of them and serve them. If you really desire to love someone in these ways, then we need to come alongside of them and care for them in their area of sin. Uh, Just a couple of days ago, I was kind of wiped out, so I tried to read a book that was beside my bed, and I got like halfway through a chapter and realized I'm not even paying attention anymore. So I went the rabbit hole of YouTube for a little while, and I found myself watching, I know this probably sounds strange, but a variety of videos about animals that operate in symbiotic relationships where you will have a large animal that cannot remove bugs from itself, and then smaller animals that survive by eating the bugs off of the larger animal. And so like the mongoose just tackling a large warthog and eating all of the bugs off of it, or wallabies going to a watering hole and the crows eating the ticks out of their ears. It is just, believe me, it is fascinating. Just, if you try it, you will get, you'll get sucked in, I promise. It is, it is wild. And I know that's a weird analogy to make, but really, as Christians, part of what we are doing is operating like that, because sin on the life of a Christian is like a parasite. It's like a tick. It is sucking the life off of you. It's foreign to you. It should not be there on you. And as Christians, we come alongside of one another, and we serve one another by helping one another remove these parasitic elements from our lives. So today, what we're going to do is look at the way progressive sanctification works in the life of a Christian. You see, sanctification in the Bible is mentioned in three different ways, three distinct ways, actually. And the first one is paralleled with justification or that initial salvific moment. We see that we have been saved by grace through faith, and at that moment we are sanctified. Now, this term literally means set apart, and there's an aspect of our sanctification which is final, it is finished, it is completed, it is past. So, for example, in in Hebrews chapter 10, it says this about our sin in 10.14. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When were we perfected in this sanctification? In the past. It was completed. We were perfected. I think another place that I really prefer to uh, consider this same concept is in 1 Corinthians where it says in chapter 6, this list of all the things that are these horrendous sins, it says in verse 9 and following, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, these are people who are unsaved. These are people who are on their way to hell. 
He, he makes a list of them. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, or the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a bad list. And then he says this incredible line, and such were some of you. Like the stuff on this list, that was you guys. Those people that don't get to go to heaven, that was you. So what happened? What changed here? And he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This sanctification, this initial sanctification process of being set apart by God is the same process as in the Old Testament you see there were items that were to be set apart as worship objects in the temple. And he says, these are no longer for public use. The showbread is not for public consumption. The things that we put inside of the temple, like the menorah and the other golden objects, those are not for public use. They are holy objects set apart. They are declared holy. That's initial sanctification. But then there's something secondary to that that is ongoing, and that's what we call progressive sanctification. It is present tense. It's the fact that we are being transformed day by day by the Holy Spirit to remove all the sin that is continuing on in our lives. We are not only declared holy at the initial outset of our salvation, we are also then progressively sanctified, being made holy. Think of it like this. Can you believe that God tells us in his word, be holy as I am holy? Now, for anyone who thinks that they are perfect and they have no sin left in them to deal with, just tell them that verse, good luck. That is a high bar. That is an incredible standard. And he says that's what we are to pursue. We are to fight our sin. We are to operate in such a way that we are eliminating sinful practices in an attempt to be like God. Uh, one of the most famous passages about this is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we are to honor God by the renewing of our mind so that we will not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. That idea of metamorphosis in the Bible, that idea of like a butterfly going into a chrysalis and that old is gone and the new has come. That is the process of sanctification whereby we renew our mind in the gospel. That is a progressive practice. There's also future sanctification. We often refer to this as glorification, whereby all of our sin will be finally removed, that we are finally and fully made holy. Now, that is good news. I think this is even sweeter news. The longer you've been in the faith, the reality is the more time you've spent in Christ, I think the more you begin to realize the depths of your own depravity, and the longer you've walked with him, the more you begin to see the dark corners of your heart that still have not yet been purified. And as you continue to fight sin, you find more and more ways that you just desire to be like God, and you realize that you're not like him now. What good news is it that in heaven we will never again even feel the temptation to sin? We will never again have any involvement with sin. It will be a foreign concept to us for the rest of eternity. Moving forward, we will never again deal with it. That is ultimate or final sanctification. Followers of the Lord, we put off the old life. Just this past Sunday here at, at Levittown Baptist, Bob, uh, you did a great job of sharing with us about putting off and putting on the way we speak, the words that we use. Uh, the passage that is mentioned here in uh, this booklet that you have on page 16 is Ephesians 4, 17 through 31. 
And on Sunday mornings here at our church, we're going through that uh, in the weekly exhortations. Once a month, we're going through a portion of that. And it does show us all of these varieties of ways that we are to take our sin and eliminate it and not just remove it, but replace it with something different. We are to not only put off, but we are to put on Christian activity. And there is a pursuit, a love of God results in a pursuit of killing your sin. I like the Puritans. They talk about it, about the mortification of sin, right? The killing of your sin. You have to kill it or it will be killing you. This is something that must be a regular practice of the Christian. Someone who follows the Lord, uh, it's not only that they have to stop doing actions, but when you follow the Lord, it also means that your affections must change, your attitudes must change, your uh, complete understanding of the world must change. That's part of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that the things that you once loved, you now no longer love, or in some cases, the things that you once loved, you now despise, you hate them. And it also means that the motives of your heart need to change, where before knowing Christ, the motives of your heart were always selfish and inward and focused on what you can get out of a situation. Whereas when you follow Christ, you begin to imitate him, like in Philippians 2, where it says that you should have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. How do we begin to think less of ourselves and more of others? It's by imitating and following and living for Christ. So when we follow Jesus, there's a transition that takes place in our life progressively, this change that takes place. Now, all of this is fundamental, foundational truth that I think most of you know well, but where it becomes very challenging is when we begin to try to apply this to the lives of other people. How do we begin to think about caring for and loving and serving others when they are caught in sin? We've started to realize, I think, how we deal with that in ourselves, but how do we do that when somebody else begins to tell us one of their trials that they're going through and one of the challenges they're struggling with with temptation or addiction, and we have to help them figure this out? Well, what does the Bible tell us regarding this? Well, first I want to make clear, the Bible does make it absolutely evident that we as Christians must come alongside one another and serve one another by fighting sin with one another. One of my favorite examples is in Philippians 4, when Paul is writing to this church, which is one of the best churches in the New Testament. I mean, it's not like the letter to the Galatians where every other word is very harsh, and if you're reading it, it feels like there's a lot of exclamation points that are in those terms. I mean, it's not harsh at all when he writes to the Philippians, but then when he gets to chapter 4, we see there is a problem there. And the problem is that there are these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, and Yodia and Syntyche cannot seem to get along. We know for a fact this is not a theological debate that's going on between them. And we know that because every time in the Bible there is a theological debate, Paul has no problem jumping in and clarifying which side of the debate is right and which side is wrong. It's not a theological issue. It's a personal issue. And these two women are not getting along. And Paul says to them, agree in the Lord. But he doesn't stop there. In Philippians 4, verse 3, he says to another unnamed individual who is receiving this letter, maybe the one who is actually carrying the letter to them, we're not positive, and he says, And I say to you, my true companion, help them agree in the Lord. Well, what is that? That is coming alongside of someone to serve them in sanctification. There's two people that are struggling with sin, and he says to this other person who is not otherwise involved, get in between them, be a peacemaker, Help them get along. It's our responsibility. 
One of my favorite places that also speaks about this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5 is one of those places where there are a myriad of commands that are just like shotgunned at you one after another. There are so many things that are stated very quickly. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, consider these commands about how we relate to one another in the congregation. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with them all. Are you responsible for the sanctification of others? Absolutely you are. Another way to see this is in the book of Acts. There's a number of times uh, that we find this very particular term, this particular phrase. When Paul is traveling from church to church, we see that it says that he went there and he strengthened the believers. In chapter 14, it says that he strengthened the faith of the believers. In chapter 15, in one place, it says he strengthened the souls of the believers. In other places, it says that he strengthened them in his teaching. In other words, there's various ways that we strengthen one another, but is it the responsibility of a Christian to serve others in strengthening them, helping them, admonishing them, and encouraging them? Absolutely it is. If you are a saved individual, part of your calling is to use the growth that God has given to you to help growth uh, be produced in others. There are a few inaccurate views of sanctification that are commonly held to in the world, and we want to kind of examine those and see how those things can really mess up our understanding of how we grow and mess up the way that we try to serve and help others. In particular, the three that we're looking at here are listed on page 17 in the center of your booklet there. The first one is quietism. Now, quietism is the idea that if you become a Christian, then you're basically done. There is no need for you to pursue righteousness, but that God will produce it in you. And mainly, the only thing you need to do is pursue some deep level of spirituality whereby the person of Jesus replaces the person of you, and then he will live through you, and it's kind of like an automated form of holiness. This is particularly common today in Pentecostal services, uh, uh, circles rather, where they believe that the Spirit of God is the one who is going to uh, basically, by indwelling you, overcome your sin nature, and therefore you have no need to fight it. The Spirit does that on your behalf. The second, uh, well, let me just say the most common way that you hear this today is in the phrase, just let go and let God. I'm dealing with sin. Well, just let go and let God. That literally makes no sense and is incredibly unbiblical. If you are trying to be transformed by the grace of God, there is effort that is required. The second form of uh, misunderstanding is actually very much on the opposite side of this equation. It's pushing in the other direction. Instead of saying, just let go and let God, it's uh, take all of the responsibility on yourself. It is pietism that teaches that we must discipline ourselves and push ourselves and strive and fight and do everything necessary to make ourselves better. And the problem with this is it so easily leans in the direction of legalism and even into the direction of saying, God will not love me unless I do this. And then it becomes God will not love anyone else unless they do what I do. That is pietism. And 
Let me give you an example of this. Just yesterday, somebody who was here at our conference was asking me a question and said, there's somebody that I'm talking to regularly that they, they are having trouble uh, in their walk with Christ because um, they made a vow to God that God, I'm going to, over the next three months, read my Bible and I'm going to fast. And this person has been unable to fast for that amount of time and unable to read the entirety of their Bible in three months. And because they have failed, they believe God is now going to judge them. And I said to this person, well, what do you say to somebody like that? I said, first, I would ask them the question, do you believe God will love you more if you can fast for three months and, not, and read your entire Bible in three months? Do you think God will actually love you more? And if they say yes, then they have a fundamental understanding of God's love. They have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to grow in love for God. And I gave the example to that person yesterday, and I said, here's how I would explain it to them. If my son Athanasius said to me, Dad, I really love you. I want to give you a gift of $1 million. I would say, well, thank you very much, Athens, but I have no expectation that you will give me $1 million. Now, I appreciate the heart behind it and the desire to do something nice for me, but there is no way he will ever be able to actually do what he says he wants to do. Well, pietism is the idea that you are going to give God something that he needs. God doesn't need anything from you. Or it's the idea that by doing the things that you are doing, you think God will somehow be impressed by your actions in such a way that he will give you a deeper understanding of himself than he would give to anyone else. Uh, this, the problem with this is that when we begin pursuing God in this way, it places all of the growth on ourselves. And that means all of the results are our own, uh, from our own cause. In other words, we did all the work, so we therefore should get all of the glory. I put in all the effort, therefore I should get all of the praise. If I'm the one who did all of this, then I am the one who has produced the fruit. Ultimately, nobody can produce the fruit of growth in their lives apart from the work of the Holy Spirit doing them. It is the fruit of the Spirit. That genitive is a genitive uh, that teaches us that that word of, that genitive, means the fruit is produced by or arrives from or comes exclusively through the Holy Spirit, not through ourselves. Pietism is not an accurate perspective. Also, the third, and this is one of the most disturbing aspects of or views of sanctification, it is the view of the carnal Christian. This is a, this is a relatively modern a distortion in the American church, especially the concept of easy believism, the idea that, well, I signed a card at some event, and so I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer, therefore I am a Christian. When I was growing up, I was in a play that was produced by some group uh, and this guy came down from Martha's Vineyard. Just, just trust me, like bringing a guy from Martha's Vineyard to Chanute, Kansas, the culture is so, it clashes a great deal. And uh, this guy came to our little town, and he taught us uh, a number of churches that worked together on this event to put together a play called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Many of you have heard about this before. Um, and I was in this uh, actually a couple of times, multiple years apart. And it was so 
I, like, I didn't think anything of it then, but now as I look back on it, it was so, it's so disturbing some of the things that the guy would say at the end of this play. Here's how the play would work out. They would have these scenes, these scenarios that would happen. So you would have maybe a guy driving to church on the way to church with his wife and two kids in the back of the car, and then they would get into a car accident. The, the whole scene would turn black. Uh, they'd turn up the lights, and then there's, uh, they have removed one of the curtains, and now they're basically standing before there's like a throne on one side, and there's like fire on the other side, and there's a question, which side of the stage are they going to go out of? Are they going to go up the stairs and towards Jesus where they hear the hallelujah chorus, or are they going to be dragged off the other side of the stage by demons into hell with a laughing Satan? And the question ultimately was whether or not they had prayed a prayer. That's what it boiled down to in the play. And at the end of this series of little skits, uh, this guy would come out and he would say to the people, well, if you want to find yourself at the end of your life entering heaven and going into God's grace and glory forever, then here's what you need to do. You just need to walk up here to the front of the stage. You need to pray a prayer, and it'll take you less time than it would going through the drive-thru at McDonald's. And that's all you need to do. And back then, I didn't think much about it, but that's a literal quote from this guy. But how disturbing is that, the idea that, well, if you just say these few magic words, then you're in, and nothing else you do matters. Now, of course, everyone in this room is thinking, that is disturbing, that is messed up, that is problematic. But the reality is, in our very own pews, in our seats, in our churches, there are many people who are still acting this way. Whether they would verbalize it or not, there are people who will say, well, I know I'm a Christian because, and they will say, I was baptized because I attend church, because I'm generous, I give. And therefore, they think that they're okay. And so the idea of fighting sin consistently just isn't a present concept in their minds. They just continue to live and operate however they kind of feel like operating in the moment. And as they're making their way through life, there is no pressure towards following Christ in the hard places of their own sanctification. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ who love them, part of our responsibility is to nudge lovingly in the direction of sanctification. And where we see sin beginning to proliferate, we begin to address it. We do so through admonishment. That's the word we looked at in 1 Thessalonians 5. Admonishing just means gently rebuking, acknowledging there's something wrong here, and lovingly coming alongside of them and saying, there's a problem. I want to help you with that. It's a way to bear one another's burdens. Interestingly, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens. And we use that terminology often in the church. We, we talk about helping to bear one another's burdens. And usually that comes through the idea of helping someone in a hard time. Maybe when somebody dies, helping their family with meals. Or when somebody's in the hospital, going and visiting them. There are practical ways that we talk about bearing burdens. But... If we're going to be honest, in the text, the context of that verse is in the context of helping someone fight sin. It's actually in the context of bearing their burdens of fighting and eliminating sin from their lives. Do you really want to bear a burden? Well, the biggest problem, again, is not the problems on the outside. It's not the sickness that resulted in them being in the hospital. It's not the death of their family member. It's, it's not the pain that they're suffering. The big problem that they are dealing with is the response to those circumstances. And if we really want to help somebody, coming alongside of them means to help them see how to honor Christ and bear that burden of honoring Christ with them and helping them to walk in that way. 
So we've considered here three incorrect views of sanctification, but there is a correct view of sanctification, and that is what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses, well, we'll look at a few verses here, 12 through 14. And when we consider these verses, I want you to see the monergistic, uh, that salvation is monergistic, meaning from one source, but here we see sanctification is synergistic in Philippians chapter 2. Here's how Paul writes about it to the Philippian church. He says, starting in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you leave it there, it feels like pietism, right? It feels like we are exclusively responsible for all of the growth in our lives. But it's not a period there, it's a comma. It says, for or because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. If you leave it there, it looks like quietism, like all of your growth is exclusively from God. Well, which is it? And the answer is, yes, it is both. And the reason for that is that uh, sanctification is synergistic. It means that you are working alongside of the Holy Spirit in your life to transform you. One of my favorite ways this is displayed in all of the New Testament is in Galatians chapter 5. Here's the context of what's happening in the book of Galatians. Paul is writing to a church that is very confused. They have stopped listening to the truth that they had received from him, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And they have started to adopt this false teaching that has been coming in from various people from the outside called the Judaizers, teaching them that if you really want to be saved, you have to not only trust in Jesus Christ, but you also have to do a bunch of Jewish-type things like Follow the food laws, and if you're a guy, you have to get circumcised, and a variety of other things. And Paul goes after that false doctrine, those wrong teachings, very harshly in this book. And when we get to the conclusion of the book, he begins to ask questions like, do you think that being saved by the Holy Spirit, you are now sanctified by yourself? Like, do you think that you, you started out with him, and now you actually pursue all the rest by yourself? Absolutely not. So how does this work? One of my favorite places that he explains it is starting in chapter 5, verse 16. He uses this term. He says, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I say to you to walk, and how do you do it? You do it by the Spirit. We see synergistic sanctification. He continues and says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now this is really important because as he talks about walking in the Spirit, it, it teaches us, and he goes on to explain all of the things that we, we fight in our uh, walk with the Spirit. He concludes in verse 25 and 26, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. There's this idea of walking with the Spirit that is repeated a, a numerous times here in this passage. What does it even mean to do that? Uh, one of the best ways I know how to illustrate this is uh, by telling you a story from my earlier days when I worked at a chiropractic office and I was working in a rehab center. And one of the things that we had that was used for a variety of forms of rehab was this large apparatus that went over a treadmill. 
So we had a, a treadmill that was not like your normal treadmill that goes up to like whatever it is, eight miles an hour, maybe 10 miles an hour. This was a supercharged treadmill that would go up to like 20 miles an hour. And we would use this thing for either people who had been in severe car accidents and lost use of their legs, or for people who were extreme athletes. It worked for both of them, but for different reasons. And the reason that we used this was to, there was a large apparatus that went over the top with hooks on the top. We would strap people into something that kind of looked like a space suit, and it would, it would go all around them with all these different straps. And then we would lock them into this top beam, and we would use a hydraulic pressure, a hydraulic lift, to pull most of their weight off of them. So let's say that you weighed 200 pounds, we would strap you in, we would hook you on, and then we would turn the lift to where now only 10 pounds of your weight is on the machine. So you are only responsible for moving a small portion of your actual weight. So when you're running, if you're an athlete, normally you're, you're moving all 200 pounds of your body, but now you're only responsible for moving 10 pounds of it, and it allows you to move much quicker. And the reason we would do that is it would train your muscles to begin to operate quicker than you could otherwise. And we would have them like run backwards at like 15 miles an hour, things like that. Um, but then if you fall, what happens? Well, your body's going to get all tangled up and twisted, but you're still hanging on. You can't fall. You can't face plant. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody face plant on a treadmill. It is hilarious, um, but it's uncomfortable. This will not permit you to ultimately fall. It's going to hold you up, but if you don't walk in step with the treadmill, you're going to be uncomfortable. The grace of God is like that apparatus holding you up. You cannot ultimately fall if you are truly a believer. He will not let you face plant in your Christian walk, but it's going to be uncomfortable for you if you are not walking in step with the treadmill. It's going to be uncomfortable if you are not walking in step with the Spirit. As a Christian, you do receive discipline. For example, Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines those he loves. In other words, he tells us if you're not receiving discipline, it's because you're not a child of God. So if you have no conflict in your soul when you're dealing with sin in an ongoing way, that's a big problem. If you have no conflict in your soul at all, it is an indication of a deeper issue. And so what happens when we walk with the Spirit? It means that we are being guided by God through the Word of God, through the teaching of the Word, through the reading of His Word, and through uh, the ongoing meditation of His Word to live like Christ. And when we don't live like that, it begins to make life difficult for us in so many ways. Sometimes that discipline is external, like God will make your circumstances difficult so that He will turn you in the right direction. But by and large, the overwhelming majority of the time, I am convinced that the discipline that the Lord gives you is internal, and I would say that that internal discipline is far more uncomfortable than the external discipline that we often encounter. So what does it look like to help somebody who is struggling with sin? It looks like helping them walk in the Spirit or walk by the Spirit. It looks like guiding them to walk with Christ well. Well, how do we do that? What is it that we can use to actually produce this kind of fruit? Well, if you know the story, I mean, I think most of us have probably heard the children's song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. You've heard that parable of Jesus. We see that parable in both Luke and in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus tells that story, and then at the conclusion, he says, 
that the wise man who built his house upon the rock is like the one who heard my words and did them. What is it that we are building our life upon? What is it that actually creates that firm foundation? It is following the word of God. I also think of what it says in the high priestly prayer of Christ, where he says, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now think about this for a moment. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed, the last night of his earthly life, and he was praying for you and for all believers that you would be sanctified. What was his concern for all of the future disciples? It was that they would be made more like Christ. And how did he pray that that would happen? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The answer is very clear. Our guiding and care for pointing people to Christ needs to be through the word. Now, I know that this is a little bit repetitious if you were here last night because we focus so deeply on the value of the word in counseling. But once again, just to repeat that, in case anyone wasn't here or in case we have forgotten, the way that we counsel others to follow Christ is through the word. And if we don't know it, we have no capability of actually doing this well. There's a lot of nice words that you can say. There's a lot of kind things you could do. There's a lot of ways to distract. But if you really want to see actual change in the life of a believer who's struggling with sin, we come alongside of them with the word of God. So that's all I have for you right now. But I want to ask if there are any questions before I close out in prayer.